difficult women in practice have always been the ones who have been vocal. They don't kowtow to other louder men in the room. They have opinions. They usually are in a position of authority and like that just intuitively makes people hate them. <laughs> and it's just like, oh God, fucking boss is a bitch. Why? Because she's your boss? Like, yeah, that's her fucking job, right? That's a good question. Wow, Kylie, let me process that. Yes, good question. Let me think about that. Ooh, great question. You're so good at that. That was really fun. Hello and welcome to Subversive. I'm your host, Callie Green. This podcast is dedicated to disrupting the status quo within systems surrounding power, money, and culture. We're brought to you courtesy of the future of customer engagement and experience, while my guests and I challenge established systems and institutions and everything from tech to the arts. Hi, friends. Hello, friend. (laughs) Are you doing today? You know, I got my little drinky drink. It's Saturday. We out here. And for those of you who can't see, what is in that champagne flute you got? It's Prosecco and orange juice. Mango orange, let me be clear. It's a fancy almost mimosa. (laughs) (laughs) So what I would love to start with as we get subversive. First, I want people to understand who you are. I want them to have a baseline of Chinese Scott before we get into this conversation about calling women difficult. If you could, in 60 seconds or less, please tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it. My name is Chinesha, and I go by Chinesha because I feel like that's a part of me that I'm trying to own and recreate. So kind of like Prince or Cher, it's just it's just the one name because that's, you know, that is who the person I am growing into. So I'm Chinesha. I am an artist. I am an educator. I am an organizer. I'm a creative. I'm a storyteller. I'm a person who loves to learn. I like science and, and information and cool stuff like that. And why do I do what I do? Because I can't, I don't have any other choice. Like all the parts of me that need to come to the surface do. And I've spent a lot of time running from that. And when I stop fighting those things, or as my friend Callie would say, when I'm in flow, (laughs) the best parts of me come out. I've spent the better portion of my adult life trying to accept and, and, and honor those parts of me. And that's why I do what I do, because I really just don't have any other choice. I love that so much. And very specifically, your current role is? Yes. I will preface that anything I say here is my opinion, <laughs> my opinion alone, and not a reflection of the work that I do. My current job is I am a segment director on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I love Trevor Noah. <laughs> When I got this job, I was like, you know who I got to tell? My homegirl, Callie. Because you were the one who, like, I know people know who Trevor was, but nobody has enjoyed Trevor's work the way that you have enjoyed Trevor's work. Like, anybody gave a damn. Forever. Forever. For the entire time. I want to say it was 2012 when Hannibal Burris used to do the Knitting Factory. Yes. He did a set at Knitting Factory. And that's when I was like, I don't know who this man is, but he is hilarious. 
And the next thing you know, he's the host of The Daily Show. Like, very similarly, I had a friend, she used to work at Gotham Comedy Club. She's like, oh, you should come see this guy one night. He's South African. He's just like you. He's like mixed. He's like light skin, blah, blah, blah. You should come. I was like, I don't want to see nobody who does light skin jokes all day. So I never went, right? (laughs) Not but a couple months later, maybe three months later, she's like, oh, I see on the news. Guess who's hosting the, The Daily Show? I was like, damn. Should have gone to see the show. <laughs> I missed the boat. But now you can say that you are colleagues, which is a pretty freaking amazing thing. It's surreal, bro. Like there are definitely days where I do stuff and then I go home. I'm like, did I just, was that my day? Did I just do that today? Ugh, it's just especially to the question of like, why do you do what you do? And like not having a choice. It's so surreal to be doing this because I spend so much time doubting that this is where I should be or doing the things that I'm doing, right? Right. So at the end of the day, when you, in hindsight, look at the thing that you just accomplished, you're like, how did that happen? Because you worked your ass off and you earned it and you deserve it and you belong in that space. And that's a constant conversation I have to have, but we're not used to it. You know what I mean? Yes. And and I want to talk about that definitely more in a bit. But what I would love to segue into next with you is what does being subversive mean to you specifically in your world? For me, being subversive is being present, you know, as a, in a, to whatever degree in a black body, in a black woman's body in these spaces, because I do recognize my proximity to whiteness, but being a black woman in these spaces is my presence is subversive because we know that our media is not representative of who we are. Our voices are not always in these rooms. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that there have been times when I've been in the room and I've been that only voice and, you know, take it or leave it. Who knows if that vision will prevail, but had it not been said, I know for a fact this other really shitty decision would have been made. And so to be subversive for me sometimes is just to be present and then also to vocalize because it's not enough for me to just be there and not say nothing, you know, but to be the human that I am and to know that as soon as I open my mouth, I know I'm going to be problematic because they're, they're hoping for like the quiet, safe, light skinned black girl. Right. And I'm not who that is. (laughs) So (laughs) I think in those ways, I'm definitely subversive. I'm like a sleeper agent black person. I get in these interviews in these spaces. I'm like, oh my God, it's so great. And I, we love that you have a master's. And like, oh, this really great, interesting experience. I'm like, oh, thank you. And then we get in a room. I'm like, I don't like none of this white shit. Why don't we got more black people? Hire so-and-so. You know, like that's, those are ways in which I'm subversive, I think. <laughs> 100%. Oh my goodness. And I had to think about this one for a while because what I want to share next is what I think the most subversive thing you have ever done is. And you literally just said it. You don't bite your tongue. And like what you're feeling is on your face. And there's no like, because I I do have an episode about code switching and name discrimination. And I love that you are, as your Instagram handles and Twitter, just Chinesia. I love the fact that you aren't trying to assimilate, that you are not trying to conform Because that is a thing that people of color, Black women in particular, are often tasked with so they don't rock the boat, so that they can, you know, in their minds, move ahead and achieve success. And you've done that without having to silence yourself, censor yourself. I mean, you're a segment director at The Daily Show. Her opinions are her own. (laughs) 
baby show. That's a big deal. I cannot explain to you how warm and fuzzy I feel that someone that I know has experienced so much joy by me getting my little my little job on, you know, like I get my little bills paid or whatever. I have a friend who's has so much joy that I just got to say that that brings me joy. <laughs> well, I'm happy that it does. And the last part of this opening is my asking you, and we've said so many things already. I'm curious what you're, what you're going to narrow down to. What do you believe is the most subversive thing you've ever done? And the first thing that came to mind in this moment when asking me this question is moving out of my parents' house. Because I'd spent up until that point, I was like 24 when I moved out, but I'd spent up until that point going to school at undergrad and grad school and supporting my family. And there just became a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm an adult. And if I ever want to be the person I want to be, I have to leave. And that caused a huge rift. It, you know, it, it was another like straw on the camel's back of the broken relationship between me and my father, um, with whom I do not speak anymore because, you know, things are the things that they are. But I think that was the most subversive decision I could have made at that moment. Cause it was the time where I finally was like, no, I got to put me first. I got to figure out what I need to do. Cause you know, I got dreams, I got aspirations. I have, you know, I want to, you know, experiment and explore parts of me. I can't do that in my parents' basement. Not gonna happen. How wild is that though, that going out on your own, doing what is the best thing for you, that people in your family considered that something that was subversive, something that was against the status quo, that you were rebelling against the system of the place. Yeah. That's wild. Well, first, I'm very proud of you for making that decision, especially at 24, when that had been the only thing you had known. And, you know, young people are notorious. I love all of you young people, but we all know that your brains are not fully developed. (laughs) And so (laughs) decision making, I mean, yes, 30s and 40s, 50s on up, we make terrible decisions as well. But to make a decision like that at that young of an age and to have the self-awareness that to get where you wanted to be, you needed to change your environment. And that reminds me of another phrase that I really, really hate, which is bloom where you are planted. Mm, no, I hate that phrase because if you're planted in the wrong place, move. You cannot put a cactus in a rainforest. The cactus will die. You cannot, a cactus will not bloom in a rainforest. That is counterintuitive and you should not be required to do so. You know what I mean? So as we get into this subject of speaking about being difficult women and what that means, I'm curious to know what is your definition like in your professional or personal life When you've heard someone call so-and-so difficult, what is the first thing that has come to mind for you when when you've heard that? I mean, difficult women in practice have always been the ones who have been vocal. They don't kowtow to other louder men in the room. They have opinions. They usually are in a position of authority and like that just intuitively makes people hate them. <laughs> and it's just like, oh God, fucking boss is a bitch. Why? Because she's your boss? Like, yeah, it's a fucking job, right? You know? <laughs> there are some people who are difficult. Let's say that, right? I work for a bunch of them. Yes. And I have also experienced those people. <laughs> I have, those are, there are actual people who are difficult, who are also women, but 
in practice, nine times out of 10, when that term is being used, it is because there's a, a woman in a position of authority and that term is used to undermine that authority. Has anyone ever outright called you difficult or even alluded to it in some way? Yeah, definitely the illusion of it where I am of a certain opinion and I am right and I am proved to be right. But then everybody is like, we're just not going to do that, you know, and my my opinion is diminished. And then I turn around like, oh, wait, (laughs) we're just going to go ahead and do the thing you were saying like three months ago. Like, so, yeah. They don't have to say it, but, you know, they tell me to shut the fuck up and get in line. And then they want to do anything I told them to do anyway. So, yeah. And it goes to what Jen Bandy Zandy, who is the editor-in-chief of FCE, among a bazillion other hats that she wears, who greenlit this podcast. Thank you forever, Jen. The article, Difficult Women, which will be linked in the show notes, is something that I wrote because I had worked with an institution, we'll say, That institution omitted me from a lot of what was my own intellectual property, what was something that I had created. And so I was very vocal because for me, working with them was an honor because they were, they're a name that people know. And so I was like, oh my goodness, they have commissioned me to do this work with them. This could be the thing that leads to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And then everywhere I look, there's I've been written out of my own narrative, out of something that I created. And so I was thinking about that and I was like, you know what? I bet you that the reason why some people in New York still don't answer messages about things or, or on the East Coast, like the West Coast loves me. But something shifted on the East Coast. And I was like, I wonder if the the reputation, the word is out that I'm difficult because I wanted to be credited for something that I did and that I created. That you brought to them because I do remember this. I do remember this particular incident. And this was this was your IP that you brought to this institution. So, you know, it's not, it should be very clear that this is a co-branded partnership. Right. And, and that to the extent of equity, even that that's not what happened. And so I started wondering if part of what had happened was that I had now become a difficult woman. And so I, I wrote this article and Jen put it on LinkedIn and it went LinkedIn viral and I was LinkedIn famous for about a week. And <laughs> So I asked her if I could do a podcast and and be difficult on a regular basis. <laughs> Can I get paid to talk and be difficult? Yes. Sometimes writing is a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me just talk and be difficult. And that goes so well because, you know, we're, we're both creatives and, and work in the industry. Mm-hmm. I remember reading something around when Me Too really blew up in the public space because Trina Burke had been doing that work for a very long time. And I'm grateful for the time that I was able to spend working with her. But one of the terms that would come up in the industry when someone would call a woman difficult, it was coded language for she wouldn't sleep with me. Mm. She wouldn't allow me to control her in some capacity. 
And so a lot of those women, like if you ever think about an actress and you're like, whatever happened to her? Mm -hmm. There's a good chance it got around in the industry that she was difficult. And let's, again, be clear. There are some definitely difficult people in the industry. (laughs) And I know we have both worked with them. Yep. (laughs) There are are also plenty who just got that label and that reputation because they didn't want to do a thing that didn't feel good to them. Because they didn't want to have someone try to control who they are. And I'm wondering if you can think of public figure or not, someone who has potentially been labeled as difficult or alluded to being problematic and what may have come of that for them? Hmm. I don't know why the first thing that came to mind where there was this one clip that I'd seen on some tour that Beyonce was on and she was in the after rehearsal talking to the staff being like, why wasn't this change made? What's wrong with this light? The costume's not done, blah, blah, blah. And like this presentation of her being quote unquote difficult when it's no, she's the showrunner. She's asked for these exact notes to be addressed and none of them have been addressed. And she's like, we're not going to continue until these notes have been addressed. It's at the end of an already long day. She dipped, you know, like when I come back tomorrow, I would like these things that have been addressed. And the perception of that being difficult when it's like, no, the Beyonce, who is one of the most famous, if not the most famous performer of our current lifetimes, right? You know, who's still living. And for that conversation to be like, no, the reason that she got there is because she has made these very clear expectations of what needs to happen in order to have that stellar performance, in order to see a Coachella, you have to have these decisions made, these edits addressed, these notes considered. And clearly she was right, (laughs) you know? This is what I want. Execute, period. End of story. That's it. And for whatever reason, like you said, problematic and difficult. Oh my goodness, I can't believe. What a diva. Oh, so difficult. Because she knew what she wanted? Mm Mm-hmm. Because the people she was paying to do a thing didn't do the thing? (laughs) Like... What? Let's go. Step it up, guys. That's how you you want to be in the A-list. You want to be top of the game. You have to have people who also are at the top of their game. Let's go. You know? Thank you for using that example, because I do feel like that is an entry point for some people who may not get it, right? Who might be like, what are you talking about? Difficult. Huh? Mm-hmm. And so what I'm wondering from you is when you hear that term, do you think it's equally as bad coming from a male or is it worse when you hear it from another woman? I'll say that when I hear it, if I heard it from a woman, I'm going to question the motivation because it's like, what's the context of you using it, right? Like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt for the moment. Like, what are are you saying, you know, start to gaslight yourself. Like, are you saying what I think you're saying or is this, should I be, you know, whatever. I'm thinking out loud. And that's actually a really interesting question because I worked with a lot of men, both white and black men, where (laughs) they're the difficult ones in the scenario, but I'm the one who's problematic. You know what I mean? Like, because anytime you say something or you contradict or you speak up and it's like, I'm just trying to make this the best for everybody. And, you know, when you're, when that's not honored, when you get thrown under the bus, 
I feel like I have a reputation and I'm always concerned because you know, we work in a tight knit industry, quote unquote, right? So somebody always knows somebody and I'm afraid that I'm always afraid that somebody's going to have a version of a job or an experience with me that's different from what I might remember. It. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I still get work as of right now, knock on wood. So I don't, you know, but I always think about that. But there have been times where I worked with women where I think, when I've had those difficulties where I've always been frustrated by it when it comes from men, but I think I've been hurt by it more when it comes from women because you hope that there are those mentors that'll look out for you. Like, is there, is, are we, can you, can we look out for each other in this space? Like we already know we got to deal with this. Like, are you a safe person I can go talk to and kiki with real quick? Cause I got a vent. I got to put it somewhere. Cause we're also in the space and we need to look out for each other. And then you find out that you can't I'm like, damn, this, there's nobody. Where do I go with this? I guess I got, just got to leave the job because it's that, I think I've been more hurt in those instances for sure. And I'm going to take that a step further and say that for me, it's it's the most hurtful mm. when it's a woman of color and very specifically when it's a Black woman. Oh, 100%. It's the most hurtful. I had a Black woman say to me, you know, we're going to look out for each other. <gasps> and, and, and then say, you know what that means, right? And I was like, yeah. I know what that means. <laughs> yes, yes. And within maybe six weeks of my having been there and being the disruptor that I am, it occurred to me that what she was saying in that first conversation was that she wanted a worker bee. Mm. And, mm. and that I was there to help her look good. And once I connected those dots because I got fired from that job over Zoom and mm. she's just smiling away and like, you know, so we're, we're going to we're going to choose not to continue the contract. And here's this HR person who didn't exist when I worked there. Mm. So the HR person got hired as I was on the way out. So I requested meetings with her on a regular basis. She denied them all. So she had already, exactly what you said, she'd already been told a version of who I was without even knowing anything about me. And I love Ted Lasso, but there is, you know, the scene where he's playing darts and he's telling the story to his rival. And the, the crux of it all is don't be judgmental, be curious. Mm, mm. And not enough people are curious. Mm-hmm. Because especially like form your own opinions be curious don't don't take someone else's judgment at face value like you don't know that person you don't know anything about them formulate your own opinions before you decide they're problematic oh they don't do this they're difficult why uh there's a job in particular that i'm thinking about where i came on and Everybody had a story about everybody, right? Like this person is like this and this person did that and don't talk to this person. High school. It's so high school. And it's, and you're, as you look around at all these people talking about each other, behind each other's backs, I'm like, y'all don't even understand. And the more it happens, the less, the less valuable the kiki becomes, you know what I mean? The less valuable the gossip becomes because it's very much built on individual like anecdotal experiences and not the whole picture of who that person is right or what my ex- my experience with them is going to look like because i'll tell you this much i don't i like to hear the gossip i don't want to be the gossip i'm <laughs> very good at trying to separate the two <laughs> 
And one of my favorite things is honestly, if, if I hear something about someone, you know, the kiki and the gossip, and my experience with that person is not what I'm hearing, I have no problem with saying, I mean, I believe your experience is valid, but that's not the experience I've had. A hundred percent. I don't want to be part of the perpetuation that this person is a certain way. And, you know, it might come out down the line that I was being treated a certain way because they had an agenda that happens. Mm -hmm. But my challenge in the article that I wrote and my challenge to anyone who's listening now, if you hear of a woman being called difficult, if you hear of her being called problematic, if you hear of her being called angry, particularly if she's a black woman, mm. ask yourself why. Yep. Yep. Cause you know, it's, especially with it, when it comes to black women, especially when it comes to this idea of being an angry black woman, it's just like, if you hear a story about an incident and you've never interacted with them and then you decided, well, she's an angry black woman. Well, all your experiences with her are going to be couched in this fake <laughs> narrative that you created. And it's like, that might not even be the truth. That's that one person's individual experience and they probably deserve whatever angry black woman energy they got from her in the first place so like you gotta you really gotta pick your battles when it comes to that for sure because it's the world we don't just pop off to be popping off like no. we enjoy job security and you know for the period of time i could have an office job it's just not my ministry i enjoyed having health insurance like, I wasn't, like, health insurance that was paid for in part by somebody else, if not in whole. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't just out there saying things to put my livelihood in jeopardy. Like, that mm-hmm. that's not how we operate. No. For the most part. For the most part. There are some women, yes, yes, that whose ministry that is, but it is not mine. And so I'm going to throw some stats at you. Yes, give me the numbers. Let's go. I need to play a lot of night. What are we talking about? This is a Fortune article. In 2021, the number of women running businesses on the Fortune 500 hit an all-time record. If you had to guess, is that number above 100 or below 100? Oh, below 100, baby. Is it above 10? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> It was 41. Damn. Well, I mean, yeah, outperforming what I expected. So good for us. And then for the first time, Black women were running Fortune 500 businesses. So like, that's just women in general. There are 41. Sure. How many Black women do you think were running Fortune 500 businesses? Oh, two. Two. I was going to say zero, but I was like, nah, there's, a, there's some black lady out there kicking ass doing something. So, yeah, two. Two! For the first time in 2021. So, last year. God. Do they still both have their jobs? And also, were they cleaning up somebody else's mess? Ooh, because that's another thing they do. They bring us in. Because somebody did something racially problematic, typically, and they're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we got to change the face of the company. (laughs) Black woman. (laughs) Because it doesn't actually change what's going on there. It's like, oh, you know, if we put somebody black here, we just fix the company. No, bro, because all the other white people still work there. (laughs) It's the same thing. Mm. Okay, I'm going to make a note to do that research so I can put it in the article if they still have those jobs. 
I would love to see them people still have their paychecks. And speaking of first, I just very quickly want to touch on one of the firsts of 2022. I mean, shout out to organizations like Sister Scotus and April Reagan and, and the other founders of the organization who years before had been campaigning for the first Black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. And the fact that we finally got it in 2022. <laughs> you know what's crazy about Judge Jackson? Sorry, Ms. Jackson. Ooh. Every time I hear Judge Jackson, I got to do that. <laughs> the wild part about Judge Jackson getting the job is not that they just found any old regular regular shorty, right? To be like, oh, we got to get somebody black. Anybody got a cousin with a law degree? It wasn't like that, right? <laughs> it wasn't, Biden didn't do that. Biden went out and found the most qualified, not black woman. He went and found the literal most qualified judge in the history of the court. And she still had to run the gauntlet. That's what blows my mind in that process. That's what blows my mind. And, and one of the things that we were talking about before is the fact that there were all of these people who had positive things to say, as you mentioned, but still were like, nah, I can't vote for you because you that goes against what my interests are. And so, oh, my God, all those senators, you're so eloquent. I love meeting your Flint family. You seem like a great person. I'm going to have to say no. <laughs> Let's add that to the list of things I want to abolish. Stop calling black people eloquent. What's the white guy's name? The drunk white guy who cried during his confirmation hearing? Kavanaugh. No one sat there and said, Kavanaugh, you're just so eloquent. Like that and that would never come up during. Also, he's not. And I would never use that word to describe him. Wow. But it's like we have to go above and beyond just to show up. And the fact that they would be so condescending as to turn around like, oh, my God, you're so articulate and eloquent. Bitch, what you think? My job is to speak. I am a judge. I make judgments. I know the law. Like, what do you want me to do here in this job? <laughs> beyond me. Because it's not, you know, and... One of the things that you mentioned early, earlier in the conversation was around the fact that you are lighter skinned and that people tend to think you are safe. <laughs> <laughs> Not the evil cackle, my bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. But there was a study done and it was posted on ideas.com and there was a paper that someone wrote, and I'm just going to read what it says. It's testing the theory that there is a preference for whiteness. No one is surprised by that. But what they didn't expect was that within the Black community, the proximity to whiteness, meaning lighter skinned versus darker skinned, mm -hmm. the wage gap, shoot. Oh, absolutely. Not shocking to me. And so the darker your complexion, and, and in other words, the darker your complexion, the less money you made, regardless of your qualification, regardless of whether you were more qualified or better at your job than the lighter skinned person, you would make significantly less money. That's how they like it. It's crazy that it happens, but it's not crazy that you just told me. Because I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's, that tracks. <laughs> 100%. And so I think that, you know, because we have these spaces now where we can speak up, where, where we can, to some extent, be transparent about things, the status quo 
the the systems that are in place are not happy about that. Oh no. And I know that you did it because it matters to say my opinions are my own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please don't get me fired for being difficult. Uh, this, this is me. This is me talking. And there is there's a lot of coded language that gets used to diminish and and to dismiss. And I I love that we are having this conversation. So let's pivot back to the misconception people have had when they bring you on that you are going to be. A safe black woman because you are a lighter skinned black woman. To that point, like in when I get these jobs in these spaces, they're especially in light of the contemporary civil rights movement that we've been experiencing, particularly in 2020, there was this knee-jerk reaction from a lot of companies to want to bring on Black staff on these productions, especially when there's like these all-white staffs that are making Black shows. And they're like, oh, but we don't have any Blacks. How do where we find Blacks? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's like 900, me, 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 me. You know, like we've been trying to bang down the door for a minute. I'm like, where are the Blacks at? Where do they keep them? <laughs> Shocking. So there's this sudden rush to get a Black. I keep saying it like that because that's the energy. I don't, that's not how I would say it, but it, the energy of hiring one of us is like, I need a black, you know? Okay. Yep. <laughs> and and I found that in like the last few years, a lot of my colleagues have been booked and busy because everybody wants uh, an African-American on staff to fill that line, right? right? But I often found that when I was working on these productions, that if I were like one of two, I was the only one. Like, I, how many times am I in the room and I'm the blackest person in the room? <laughs> Baby, I'm beige. Let's just be clear. If I am the darkest person in the room, there's a problem. And I know this, you know, and I, but they bring me on because it's like, oh, we, we filled the quota, but we got somebody that doesn't immediately remind us that she's black. But then I open my mouth and like, oh, God damn it, we fucked up again. Like, they, we got the wrong one, damn it. <laughs> in that position where I present in a way and I recognize that but politically I do not fulfill a lot of people's expectations and so I often only get certain kinds of jobs where I am in spaces where that is supported and advocated and I can be the person that I am because I just can't I can't operate there's certain jobs that I can't have I will lose them or I will never be hired because I of who I am yep and again because the people are looking for the blacks. I've got a lot of people coming to me asking me to interview and I'll interview for jobs. And there've been times where I've turned them down where I was like, I see what you need here. And as much as that I could do the job, I am not the person for this job. You are going into a community that requires someone to present in a certain way that needs to communicate with this community. And not that I couldn't, but I'm not going to be your token. Period. And as it happened, a, f- a dear friend, actually a former student of mine who'd become like a best friend, a, a sister to me, wound up getting that job through no fault of my own. I was like, nah, I got to go. And she wound up because there's like eight of us who are all up for these jobs. Right. <laughs> so she, who is this like beautiful brown skin Haitian woman that I know, got the job and is killing it because, of course, she would. Um, but she is the one that should be in that position and not my beige ass. And I absolutely adore that for her. Self-awareness is in such short supply, and I don't want to name names, but 
Some people should not be taking roles in professional settings, like in corporations, but also on screen. Have the self-awareness to know that you are not going to do a thing justice and step back. Yep. Like push someone else forward or at least create the space for the right person yes. to be in that role. That just, oh my gosh. So Because that also speaks to how racist the hiring person is and our own internal colorism where we're like, oh, any one of us can do it. We're all black. Because like, yeah, we are all black, but we're not all the same. We're different. There's different people doing different shit. So, so as as we as we bring this amazing conversation to a close, and I, you know, I talk to you as my friend, and and I try to remember to preface these conversations with, like, you are my friend in real life. Yes, <laughs> like, I know you in real life. Yes. How do you think that? people like employees or coworkers with one another can start to shift this mindset about women being difficult and Mm -hmm. speaking up, which is a thing that a lot of people are afraid to do because they don't want to become a target themselves. And as I ask that question, I say it because I don't think it should be on the women and especially not on the black women to do the labor of, because as Audre Lorde said, <laughs> I'm perfect. the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So Absolutely. It's one of those things where we can't go and look at this system and then pick up the tool that built the system and be like, okay, so I'm going to fix this. That's not how mm-hmm. it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not how it works. So what do you think those around us who they could maybe pick up a different kind of tool and start to tackle this problem. Where would you advise somebody to start in the experience that you've had having worked in various capacities in your industry with various types of personalities? Oh man, accountability is the first thing that comes to mind. And I think Mm -hmm. about that a lot, especially these white institutions that profess to want to bring on black talent or people of color, but then they only hire them as PAs. And I'm speaking very specifically from like a production perspective, but it it works across the board where, you know, you only bring them in the mailroom or the call center or something. They're not executives, right? And that, that kind of like incremental change of your staff will shift the culture. But if you're just hiring your tokens to meet a quota or a presentation, it's not going to work. And accountability where it's not just, oh, we write an open letter where we are committed to making change. And then, you know, (laughs) this is our pledge where we're going (laughs) to... There's a hashtag and then they change their avatar on Instagram for a week and ta-da, we fixed racism or whatever and sexism and all of that. But I, you know... Honestly, all these institutions and the people that work there are going to have to get really uncomfortable. You're going to wind up being in spaces where you just can't keep doing the things that you normally do. You're going to be called out on things. There's the cognitive dissonance of being called out on stuff and having to work through that. And I think a lot of times there are people who are like, yeah, racism is bad, but it's not me. And therefore, the thing you're saying that is being directed at me (laughs) doesn't apply. So, you know, then you get to like this like fucking logical loop of like we keep coming back because you don't think you're responsible. You are. And that's where accountability comes in. Right. And I will speak to again without naming names, but part of the work that I do 
as an advocate and in changing my industries as co-chair of the Women of Color Caucus, nonfiction Women of Color Caucus at the Writers Guild of America, which, you know, we do these workshops and trainings to give folks skills that look like us to make sure that they can force their way into the industry in powerful ways, but also unionizing, creating organizing efforts to have contract enforced accountability, right? So it's one thing to say that you want to hire black staff. It's another where your union contract says that you're required to bring on X amount of staff or that if internally you're hiring, it has to be at these venues and these many people and, or, you know, at the end of the day, your staff have to have a 10 or 12 hour turnaround. You can't, you know, send them home with six hours between shifts like that. Or, you know, if you have a job at a certain level, you have to pay them a living wage and then some with benefits because then, you know, we know that class and and race are inextricably linked. So if these below the line, as we would call them, positions are getting paid less than they deserve, then these folks don't have viable ways to be sustained in this career, which means that they don't get to stay in, they don't get to put in the time and that's required to like rise up in the ranks. So all of these things can be enforced with a contract. But if you are a company who professes to want to advocate for these people, but do not want to come to the table and just codify all the things that you already do or already say that you do, you're not really committed to doing the work. And I've been in that position where I've had conversations with executives at certain companies who've claimed to want to do the right thing and claim to internally do the right thing, but they don't want to sign a contract because they know that they don't always do the right thing. And if there's accountability there, that means that they have to be held responsible. So that's that's what I feel about that. Yes, I love it. It's brilliant. And I love it. Chinesia. Just Chinesia. Just Chinesia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I am so grateful for you as my friend, but also as someone I've had the opportunity to watch like the greatness that has always been there has come to fruition in ways that are so tangible. I appreciate that because all the things that I do is like, I want to bring my friends along. I want to bring us along. And I I mean, like the the royal us, like all of us, our people, but also specifically my people, like my homies. (laughs) So when I get... When I get something, all of us eat. That's how I feel about it. So again, I thank you for being subversive. I thank you for being difficult (laughs) because that is how we move the needle in the direction of us not having to work so hard for things that are just handed to people who haven't earned it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I will continue to be difficult until that is no longer the case. Yes, until we can stop saying the first Black anything, I will be either on social media or on a podcast (laughs) being subversive and loud about the fact that it shouldn't have to be that way. Absolutely. And I thank you so much for being who you are. And for being in conversation with me today. I love you. Thank you, magical lady. Thank you. Love you too. Appreciate you. Yay. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Bye. Subversive is written, produced, and co-edited by Callie Green. 
predominantly edited by associate producer Adam Ross. Our resident mental health expert is Tracy Treacy, and our music supervisor is Samora Pinderhughes, who composed the music you are hearing right now. We can't wait to join you back here soon, but until then, you can find me on Twitter at Callie Green. Thanks for listening. <laughs>